0: to acknowledge how great our God is. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 3. Starting with verse 31, we'll look at that passage to the end of the chapter. We're going to talk about the family, redefined. Jesus is going to do that for us in this passage. You ever wished your family was different? (laughs) You ever wanted different siblings? <laughs> <Ever>? <laughs> two of them looked at each other. Uh, two, two different parents, different relatives. Got an uncle that you wish you didn't know that was there. You know, we we've, we've had those comic comments, and family reunions can be interesting. But changing members of your family will not fix your family. Okay, but changing souls, it can redeem your family. And Jesus redefines the family here based on that premise. Remember that Mark is a testimony. He's giving a testimony of what Jesus did during his life and ministry here on planet Earth. And he records constantly through the book, he records the the growing tension between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious elitists. But also there's going to come a point where the tension between the crowd begins to show up. The tension between what they've been taught or what they believe to be true shows up. And Mark's going to record that. And he's doing this to show that the persecuted believers out there, when he finally writes this and releases it and they send it out, those persecuted believers are getting a better picture of what Jesus went through. So they know, because some of them may not have even been around or knew Jesus at all personally. And now Jesus is going to show how his mission will change the family forever. Look at verses 31 through 35 with me. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother, your brother, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage because it introduces one of the most important things we could ever see introduced in Scripture, and that is the church. But we also see how it teaches us to relate differently to one another. Give us guidance this morning as we walk through this and understand what we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Jesus' family shows up and interrupts his teaching with a request. If you go back up to verses 20 through 21, you'll see that they had heard that he was really popular and they came to take control of him um, because he was out of his mind. So if you remember that from verses 20 through 21 of chapter 3, They came and they interrupted his teaching. But Jesus uses this interruption as a teaching moment about the kingdom of God. And so when we become a follower of Jesus, it changes our relationships with our family and with each other. And that's what Jesus is getting across to them and introducing them. So what changes does our salvation make to our relationships on earth? Well, the new covenant in Christ Jesus sanctifies our relationships with three new possessions. A new king, a new life, and a new family. First, I want to explain the story because it's a simple story. I'm going to walk through it a little bit, and then we're going to talk about those three things. A new life, a new king, a new life, and a new family. So this narrative really has only one main point. And that's why we're just going to talk about the the narrative and how it plays out. Jesus pronounces the unforgivable sin onto the scribes. He's just finished doing that in verse 30. And then he gets a message from mom. Can you come outside? We need to talk to you. So his family has shown up on the scene to intervene because Jesus' popularity is just not natural. It's not normal. And it's not something in the, the shame culture of the Jewish first century Christian Jewish Palestine. That's not something that's normal. You don't try to draw attention to yourself. They were going to intervene. Now, I think Mary, his mom, was probably more concerned about the stress that was on Jesus. That's that's how moms tend to express themselves. you You need to get some rest. You need to eat more. Eat's one of the big things in the South that moms and grandmas push on you. She was more concerned about what it was doing to Jesus personally. But his brothers and sisters, they were probably mad. <laughs> they were probably embarrassed. Look what that guy's doing. I live with that guy. I know him. Of course, they don't know Jesus as a sinful person, but they just think, who does he think he is? There may have even been, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, some fear of the Roman reprisal because he was so popular. The crowds were so big. It had to be drawing attention by the Roman government. But they wanted a word with Jesus to reason with him. And the family, the the people that are here, uh, there's there's a list in Mark in several places, Mark 6.3, Mark 15.40, and Mark 16.1. It could be Mary, his mother, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, those are the brothers, and then his sisters. And we don't really think we have a name for any of the sisters, but he did have sisters. These were Mary and Joseph's children, okay? After... Jesus was born. So Jesus being the firstborn. So those are the list of the names. But, but Jesus, again, like I said, turns this interruption into a teaching moment. He asks a question. He asks, Who are my mother and my brothers? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. Most people outside, right? I mean, that's the answer. But Jesus is obviously trying to make a point here. And if you've, if you've been around rhetorical teaching and you know when someone asks an obvious question, it's probably not the obvious answer. So they were kind of like scratching their heads, I'm sure. But who are the, those closest to me, Jesus asked. Who do I consider my family? What connects me with people I would consider my family? That's the question Jesus is kind of asking. And he pauses for effect, and reflection, I think, for a second. He looks around, and and he describes it as a circle. That word there just means around or about him, but some translations translate it circle. But he's looking around at the people, pausing, and then he answers the question with the most unusual answer. This is not what they were expecting. The will of his Father, the will of his Father, the will of God is the key connection Jesus makes with people. See, closeness with Christ means submission to God. That's the only way you can be a family member with Christ is to submit to God. Closeness with Christ means submission to God. Jesus is looking at his disciples, the 12 he just picked, which includes Judas. He's looking at them and he's looking at the other followers that are in the room or in the house with him, but he's not, and he's not necessarily pronouncing them all Christians yet. He's not doing that. But he's making the qualifier clear. Submission to my Father in heaven. If you read the other parallel passages this week in Matthew 12 and, and Luke 8, he, he uses the fa- he- will of my heavenly Father. He uses the word of God in one of the, them. It all con- it means the same thing. It is obedience. Obedience that connects him. See, this is about commitment, not familiarity. Not the fact that you're a family member or blood-related It's submission, not just association. And that's the point Jesus wants to make. See, Jesus doesn't automatically assume all these are Christians. He knows who's going to accept him and who isn't. He doesn't pronounce them all intimate followers of him. But he's making a point as he looks around that these here, some of these here, and obviously we know the 11 are there, and they were definitely intimate followers of Christ. He affirms, though, their desire to understand and learn from him. That's a good thing. And that is the Father's will. He desires to change their perspective, though, from from blood relations to eternity. From family to church. From race to grace. I mean, that's what he's trying to do is change their perspective. Now, what does the will of God actually mean? I mean, we hear that a lot. And and some of us kind of get stopped at that. What exactly... Is the will of God, and it's not. Jesus isn't talking about the secret will that God has, the 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 decreed will that we don't know exactly what's going to happen next. Kind of will. That's not what Jesus is talking about. We pine over that. We wonder about that. We wring our hands over that. What's going to happen next? Jesus is talking about the Word of God, and at that point in time, it's the Old Testament. But it, but God's will is in there, and after we add the New Testament to it, we really have a good version a solid version of God's revealed will. This is God's revealed will, the book of, that we call the Bible. I mean, we lament over this unseen will, but we really should be focusing on this one that we have. That's where truth is, and that's where we're going to learn how we should live. Jesus is telling them to follow, to obey, to do the revealed will of God that is contained in Scriptures. Some people, when they read the Old Testament, they like to skip Leviticus Because it's so tedious, so many rules. But I'm going to tell you something. There's things in there you can read that tell you how to treat people, to tell you how to make things right. There's good things in there. And that is part of God's revealed will. So read every word of it. Enjoy it. Look for what you can apply in light of eternity. James 1.22 says, and I'm going to quote the King James because that's the way I learned it 25, 30 years ago. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Do the word. Do the word. And it starts with, I'm going to give you a starting point if you don't know. It starts with believing in Jesus. John 6:40. Jesus is having a discussion. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. That's God's will, is that everyone that looks on the Son and believes him, that's where it starts. All this other stuff doesn't matter for eternity until you look at the Son and believe in him. That's where it starts. That is the will of the Father. Start there. Now, let me tell you, Jesus is not telling us to disrespect our families here, okay? Okay? I don't want anybody to walk out here and go, well, you know, I don't have to do anything for my parents or my kids or whatever. That is not what Jesus is saying, okay? He's not telling us to disrespect, disregard, disown, desert our families at all. Matter of fact, if you remember on the cross, Jesus took a moment and made sure that Mary was taken care of because he was the leader of the family, handing her off to the apostle John. He cared about his family, and we'll see that through the rest of Mark as well. But he's not saying those things. Some people want to get a little crazy with the interpretation. What he's telling them is that Jesus teaches an eternal perspective to all things. Everything he talks about, and that includes family. Obeying God's word gives us a new king. And that's where we're going to start. A new king, a new life, and a new family. And here's what Jesus has done for us in the new covenant. So we're going to walk through these three things, these three new possessions you have. And we're going to let scripture instruct us this morning, not me. Okay, I'm not going to elaborate on these passages, but we're going to look at a lot of passages. So get your uh, Bible drill thumbs ready. We're going to go through this. A new king. A new king. If you want to go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 1 verse 1 through 5. The whole thing that Jesus is teaching right here starts with verse 35 in Mark 3. Everyone who does the will, whoever does the will of my father, whoever does the will of God. That's where it starts. And remember, Jesus is the word made flesh. So he's the person we're obeying as well. And as a born-again believer, you have a new king. Who is this king? That's some of the questions that you might get asked. You might be asking yourself, well, let's see what God tells us about him. God's word, like I said, will instruct us on this. These aren't new passages. You've read them before if you read your Bible at all. But we need to read them again. John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. It's talking about Jesus right there. Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. We're familiar with this this hymn that Paul writes, and this is not the whole thing, but this is a portion of it. Because we want to see who our king is. If you're a believer in Christ, you have a new king. Starting with verse 8. He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That should excite you a little bit, okay? That's who your king is. And because of what he did for us. uh, Go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 15 through 22. Colossians chapter 1. Starting with verse 15. Talking about Jesus again, our new king. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before God. Wow. That's who our new king is. And let's go to the end of the book because you can't talk about the new king without going to Revelations and talking about the king, the king of kings. Let's go to Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. Revelation 17, 14. These will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because, because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Called, chosen, and faithful. That's talking about you if you believe in Jesus Christ. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the called, chosen, and faithful. Right there. Flip over one more page to chapter 19, verse 16. See it one more time. Chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 16. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's your new king. And he will come back. And when he does, it will be glorious for those of us who trust him. It will be dreadful for those who don't. From eternity past to eternity future, Jesus Christ is your new king if you have trusted him for your sins and your forgiveness. Now, we sometimes have a wrong image of kings because we in America rebelled against a king so we could form this country and this constitution that we have, and it's a great thing, and that king was tyrannical. But this king is not a tyrant. This king is not a dictator. He's not even a president. He's a father. He's a father with never-ending love and kindness. And that's who we're trusting. That's who your new king is. So we need to lose all of our ideas of what a king is on earth, because an earthly king does not compare to this king. Embrace in your mind, in your heart, Jesus Christ as your new king. God is your new king. Christ, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Now, kind of as a point of illustration, it's not a very good one, but we get in our jobs, we'll get a new boss, or in some situation, we may get a new leader that uh, we, we have to respond to. And usually when that happens, they want to do new things or they want to try things differently, and you wind up with more deeds and chores than you had maybe before. But not so with this king. When this king shows up and has shown up in your life, you have a king who died for you. He's not demanding of you. He's died for you. You have a king who saved your soul. And you have a king who offers you a full life by obedience to his revealed will. That's who your king is. So how is your relationship with your new king going? That's a question you probably should ask yourself every day. I know I try to. How is your relationship with your new king going? Are you living in close communion and fellowship with your new king? Because that's what he wants. He wants us in close communion with him. He wants us to fellowship with him. He wants us to spend time with him. Or does your life get hijacked by other relationships or other tasks do others hinder your affections for Jesus? Kind of get in the way? Do, do, gets in the way of your devotion, your submission, your following Jesus? It can happen. It has happened. And in the life of every believer, God should come first. Period. And that, that doesn't mean we exclude things necessarily that are still good things. But God comes first. Loving, worshiping, and serving the king of kings is job number one. If you put that first, man, so many things fall into place. So many things get redeemed. And we we find out how that happens when we seek the wisdom of Scripture. So what Jesus said, whoever does the will of God is my mother, my brother, and my sister. Seek his wisdom in the Scriptures. You have a new king if you believe in Jesus Christ, and that changes everything. And the first thing it changes is your life. You have a new life. Your new king has given you a new life by what he's done. Those who do the will of God are those who are born again. Like I talked about earlier, until you believe in the Son, as Jesus Jesus said in John 6 40, you can't be considered obeying God's will because that's the first thing. You've got to start there. You can do things that are in the Bible, you can do things. You can come to church. The Bible talks about being a church member, coming to church, attending church. But until you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God for your sins, you are not, you're not following the will of God. That's where it starts. So those who are born again, regenerated and sold by the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for your life? <laughs> well, it means a lot. But I want to talk to you about some passages and we're going to read some passages. You want to turn to Romans 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. But the first passage I think of when I think of being a new life is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And how does a new creation live? Well, let's go to Romans 6. Romans 6. This is just one spot. Paul's going to talk about it. As he's trying to convince the Romans about their justification by faith, that because they've accepted Christ as their Savior, they have a new life. And, and he wants to give them a logical approach to this to follow through with what happened because of Jesus Christ. So follow along as I read Romans 6, verses 1 through 18. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin shall not rule over you because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin, leading to death, or of obedience, leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I know that's a lot but you need, to, you need to read it again sometime and meditate on it. You are free from sin. You are set free. You're, you're to be enslaved to righteousness, to do the right thing. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to do the wrong thing because if you go on to chapter 7 in Romans, you see Paul talking about that very thing, the struggle that goes on because we, we still live with a sinful nature, but we don't have to live under that sinful nature. We don't have to live because we're controlled by it. You're under grace. If you, if you mess up, Confess it and move on. Let God forgive it and move on. There may be consequences, but there is forgiveness. See, this new life is one unshackled by sin. It doesn't have sin constraining it anymore. We are free to live for God in righteousness. And that's the new life you have. There's no shame, there's no guilt, and there's no despair in this new life. God's got you, as they say. So live it out. Your new life must be used, not shelved, not something you say, well, I've got this new life, but I'll get to it later, or I'm going to put it over here for safekeeping till I'm dying or dead. That's not what God calls us to do. I had an uncle who had a whole closet full of pants he'd bought, new ones. They still had the tags on them. I'm talking a whole closet full. Hanging up, I think there were jeans. He never, he never wore them. He never used them. But he found a good deal. That's not the way our new life is meant to be used. Our new life is meant to be used, executed, employed in our hearts. So let me ask you some questions. What has hindered your new life from reaching its full potential? Is there something in your life that you need to work on to get rid of? To, as, as Paul says, don't present your body as, with, with members' weapons for unrighteousness, but try to change things so that you can present your body as a weapon for righteousness. Are you living like your soul has been freed from sin? I mean, sometimes we, we, we live with too much guilt as Christians. We think we're always guilty and we just have to be. No, you're, fr- you're free from that. Confess it, let him forgive it, and move on. We don't, need to, we don't need to waller under guilt. You're freed from sin. As a believer, a follower, a new re- relative of Jesus Christ, your new life is guaranteed and available. I'm saying it again. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your new life is guaranteed. And it's available to you right now. You can live it by picking up God's word and reading it avidly. Read it from cover to cover and ask God to show you how to live it out. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed but correctly handles the word of truth, the Bible. Do your best. That's what our new life is meant to be. And now because we have a new life, we have a new family. A new king has given you a new life which places you right into a new family. And this is one way you live out your new life is with a new family. See, Jesus' family, they, they kind of challenged him while he was living. I mean, there you see it several times and in several different ways. His family was like, what are you doing? What do you th- who do you think you are kind of thing? And even his, his neighbors and friends in Nazareth were like, you're just a carpenter's son. What are, you, what are you telling me about? But after his death and resurrection, some of his family changed their tune quite drastically. Matter of fact, James and Judah, Jude, who was called Judas at one point, but Jude wrote books of the Bible because they believed in their, their brother, their half-brother, Jesus Christ. So sanctification is a lifelong process, and it took them a while to get, catch up, probably, um, and they did. But God's family, God's new life that he's given you has changed your family. Here's some passages we're going to look at. First of all, John 1:12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called Children of God. Children born not of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That's what what happens. That's what happens when we become children of God. Turn to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. I can't stress how much that your new life means you're in a new family. If you've trusted Christ, you are part of the family of God, which is why we sang that song this morning. That while we travel here on this planet, we have a family to travel with. We're not lone rangers; not meant to be anyway. Look at Romans chapter eight, verses fourteen through seventeen. For all those, for all those led by God's Spirit, are God's sons. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. If children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we might also be glorified with him. You and Jesus are brothers, or sister and brother. You're a child of God's family. Flip over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 explains it again that we have been loved so much that God has brought us right into his family. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 3, 1 and 2. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are, John says, we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Look at what your family promises you. You're a child now. You're a co-heir with Christ. And now you're loved by God so much that when he sends Jesus back, you're going to see him face to face. And you will be like Jesus when that happens. And last, let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 14 through 19. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Paul is trying to drive home the same point I'm trying to drive home this morning that you are children of God. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that He may grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what I pray this morning for us, that we will all realize that. The church. This is what Jesus is really introducing here. The first time he's really kind of introducing it without using that word, church. But our relations change because of Christ. The church is your new family. Not just necessarily this local body of believers, although that is part of your family. But all of those who have trusted Christ are part of your new family the church is what Jesus is really talking about. See, Jesus is changing our focus from blood kinship to redeemed kinship, from earthly to eternal, and from an ancestry kind of mindset to a savior. Christ points to the church as the new family here and sets the stage for the new covenant. When he he dies is buried, rises from the dead grave. He makes the new covenant real, and it births the church of Jesus Christ. That's what he's setting up here. It's the stage. And you know, there's some members of our church that have never had a family that supports them, never had a family that cared for them, never had a family that edifies them. Now they do. I hope we're all being family members to one another. I mean, how do you feel about your new church family? You know, if you didn't realize this before, maybe you're realizing it now, but have you looked each other as to each other as blood bought relatives? You know? You're not, you're not just kin because you related to them. There's no family tree here in terms of that kind of way. See, Jesus is telling the crowd that his blood, by his blood, you now have a new relationship new relationships with those who share in the fruit of righteousness. That's what Jesus is telling them. Who is my mother and my brother and my sisters? It's those who do the will of God. And see, the church is not just an organization of people. It's an organism of people, of souls who have believed, who've trusted Christ. And God calls us to live like a wholesome family. And I know that's hard because we're all kind of still a work in progress. But he calls us to live that way. It is God's will. It is what's in his word, and he tells us to join together, to join together in a redefined family of saints who seek his kingdom first and his righteousness first. We don't need to treat the church like a once-a-week event. We don't need to treat it like it's a social club. The church is a body, and it needs each of us to invest in it, to invest in it that, and link arms together and carry the gospel to the world. However we can do it, from our little spot here in Altamont, Illinois, we can reach the uttermost parts of the world. You know, family first is a common phrase, you hear. And where I grew up down south, man, it came, I mean, two brothers could fight all the time, but if you got between them, mm, it was bad. So family first is a common phrase. Blood is thicker than water, you know, they tell you. Well, let me tell you something. As a believer in Jesus Christ, the family of faith is first, should be first. And the blood of Jesus Christ is thicker than any blood there is. And if he spilt it for you, if you've accepted his spilt blood for your sins, that blood's on you and in you. And your family, the church, is who you're connected to. So let me sum up a little bit to just say that Jesus is teaching a new expression of family. He's redefined it based on what he's going to do in the new covenant in his blood. Okay? This is what he, he's introducing this right here the first time. He uses a teaching moment with his, his own earthly family to do that. And believers, when you receive a new king, a new life, and a new family, the church, your blood, your sins are forgiven, and, and the, the blood that runs through your veins is, is now an eternal connection because of Jesus Christ. What if all the churches behaved like a gospel-centered family I mean that's a question I thought of this week is like, what if we all realize we're we're family, you know, even in this little group, but also in the other people that profess faith in Christ, can we live and love like a family who follows the King of Kings? I mean, what would happen if our new life in Christ was seen by everyone? Well, that's the reason Jesus said, You're a city on a hill, you're a light in the world, you're salt. That's what a church is supposed to be, is a family. We do it together. We do it in love and acceptance of one another. And believer, this morning, if you have been adopted in this family of God, I just encourage you to start living like you have been adopted into this family. Live that new life under that king that's new and with the church and the family. And if you want to find out how to become a full partner of our our faith, I'd love to talk to you. Come find me afterwards. We'll, We'll set that up. But now, friend, if you feel like you're on the outside of this family this morning, if you feel like you're one of those that are kind of like, well, I'm not sure if I'm part of the family, you can move to the inside. You can move to the inside. By trusting Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you can find forgiveness right now in Christ and be part of the family of God. Come see me if you want to know more about that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for what you've given us. We do not deserve it. It is all of grace. You are our new king. You are our new life. And you have given us part in an eternal family that is your children. May we remember that. May it guide us. May it direct our hearts and our lives. May May we find the strength and the faith to live it out in front of the world that they will know that we are children of King, that they will know us by our love for one another. We pray for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand and sing about letting God have his way in our life. Have your own way. Lord, have your own way.